0: We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Karen Ahmed and Zamir Khan. Imagine that you have a new baby. Imagine you're flying to another part of the country when he is six weeks old so he can meet his grandparents. You buy your tickets, and at the appropriate juncture, you try to check in for your flight online. You get a message saying you can't, so you have to check in at the desk in person. It takes a while, and the rationale they give for why you have to do so doesn't really make much sense, but you don't think much of it. Except every time you fly with your son over the next year and a half, there is a different and equally dubious reason given for why you're not allowed to check in online. It's becoming increasingly clear that this is no accident, but it's only when an airline employee lets slip that your son your 18-month-old son is flagged by the Government of Canada's no-fly list that it becomes clear why you have unexpected problems every time you travel. This is what happened to Zamir Khan and his family. Or imagine that you have a teenage son. You were vaguely aware of having additional hassles at the airport every time you travel with them, but you only realize how serious things are when you are at the end of a family trip to India, ready to board the plane home to Canada, and the airline tells you that you will not be permitted to do so. After several panicked hours, you are eventually able to clarify the situation and begin the trip back to your jobs and lives in Canada, but it's a sign that this could easily upend your lives without warning in the future. You, too, eventually find out that your son's name is on the no-fly list, and that any time he travels, he could face such arbitrary impediments. This is what happened to Karen Ahmed and her family. The no-fly list has been around since shortly after 9-11. It is meant as a security measure, but few countries outside of the U.S. and Canada have such a thing, and it has long been a focus of skepticism and concern for many. Exactly how names are added to that list and on what basis is shrouded in secrecy, and not everyone is satisfied with the idea that we should just trust the process. This is, after all, in the context of significant evidence of the Canadian national security state targeting Muslim individuals and Muslim communities in multiple ways, as documented, for instance, by activist writers like Matthew Behrens and scholars like Shireen Razak, among others. And it's also in the context of this month's official state apology to victims of the anti-LGBTQ purge campaigns conducted in earlier decades by the federal government, which show the long history of the national security apparatus in Canada causing harm to marginalized groups under secretive security rationales that do not hold up to rigorous justice-based scrutiny. The specific problem that the group No Fly List Kids has come together to address is that when a name is added to the No Fly List, The list then targets everyone who shares that name. Karen, Zamir, and the other members of No Fly List Kids didn't know each other initially. Originally, many thought they were the only ones facing this problem, and it was only when one case hit the media that they began to realize how widespread the problem is, and to find each other. Parents of kids who have names that appear on the list, certainly some of whom are Muslim, but who are from many different backgrounds, Began talking on the phone, getting to know each other, comparing notes. Soon enough they had put together a website and Facebook page, and they are now a loose but sizable network with a core of families that have gone public, but many more who have chosen not to do so. And the network now includes not only families of children who have names that are on the list, but also adults who have the same problem. Their main demand is a change in the no-fly list system that would allow those who are targeted to go through a one-time vetting to get a unique identifying number that would allow airlines and border officials to quickly and easily identify them as being allowed to fly. The U.S. has had such a system for years. As well, they think other changes to how the no-fly list works, for instance using more than just a name to match individuals, could help avoid the broad targeting of people in the first place. The group started off with the families talking to their own MPs. Gradually, they enlisted their extended families and personal networks to do likewise. They are now at the point where they have had a petition that has been widely circulated, and they have formal letters of support from many, many members of Parliament, including a lot of members of the governing Liberal Party. Part of the frustration that they face is that almost all of the politicians and officials they talk to about the issue are sympathetic at an individual level, but there are still no signs of any action whatsoever from the federal government. They have been willing to work with the government on the issue, but their patience is wearing thin, and if there is once again no funding to start solving the problem in the next federal budget, they may begin actively considering other options, including a class action lawsuit. Karen and Zamir speak with me about their family's experiences with the no-fly list and about the work of no-fly list kids to change it.
1: Hi, I'm Karen Ahmed, and I have a son that is 19 years old that's on the no-fly list. He's been on this list possibly his whole life. It has been a major inconvenience, and we're here to get him off the list and several other children that are on the list as well.
2: My name is Amir Khan. I'm a father of two children. My oldest is a three-year-old boy, Sebastian. He's also flagged by the no-fly list every time we fly, as ridiculous as that sounds. And both Karen and I are, I guess you could call us founding members of a group that's called No Fly List Kids, a group of Mostly parents who have children that are falsely flagged by the no-fly list, but also adults who suffer the same fate. And then just a lot of really good people who aren't necessarily directly affected by the list, but see this as something that's wrong and something that should be fixed and are helping us you know, towards a solution. Canada has its own no-fly list. The U.S. has their own no-fly list. But actually beyond that, the concept of a no-fly list is not all that common around the world. It's something that came into place after 9-11 happened. So obviously at that point, countries wanted to be taking more care to who was getting on airplanes. But since then, the lists have, I would say, kind of expanded from their original purpose of keeping hijackers off airplanes to having a much wider net that they cast, particularly under Bill C-51 in Canada, that net was expanded. And the implementations of these lists, particularly in Canada, from a technical standpoint is that the government creates the list, but then in terms of enforcing this list, the government supplies this list to airlines who then check it against their passenger manifests. So for example, what happens to us as a family is when I book a flight with my family to go somewhere that includes my son, all of our names are added to the passenger manifest. And then when we go to check in online, the computer system of the airline runs my son's name against the government list and it simply matches against that list based on his name and a flag comes up and says, you know, this person is of interest to us. This three-year-old is of interest and at that point we can't check in anymore and we're told to go, you know, to the counter in person to receive additional screening.
1: For us, I think with Adam, we always suspected that he was on something. I mean, it was more like a joke. Every time we tried to cross over, you know, he would have a little bit extra security. They would look at him up and down. But it wasn't until this horrible incident that we were actually stopped and detained and told that we could not come back to our own country. We were flagged in India. We traveled to India. And on our way back, my son, Adam Amit, was flagged. We weren't given any information. Now, this is a couple of years ago, and I didn't even know about the no fly list at that time. And all they said was, you cannot fly back to Canada. And we said, what do you mean we cannot fly back to Canada? We are scheduled to go back. We have to start work in a couple of days. Like, What do you mean? And the issue was resolved, but it took a couple of hours to get that result. And that's when I thought, oh, my God, there's something going on here. But I had no means to find out what was going on. There's no way for me to get this information. Now, it wasn't until a whole year later that the story of little Adam Ahmed broke. He was detained. His father was smart enough to take a picture. It was all over the news. And I saw it and I looked at his name and I thought, oh, my God, this is the same first name and last name. And it was crystal clear. I said, this is why he was detained a year earlier. I got in touch with the parents and, you know, that's when we kind of all got together and found other people that had similar situations to us. And we got together and we formed the No Fly List Kids.
2: I found out about our son just over two years ago. Similar to Karen's experience, we had travel issues with our son actually since he was born, but we didn't know what the issue was. We flew, I would say, probably five or six times with the same kind of charade happening of us being blamed for the issues we were having. Every time it was a different booking error that we made and each time we tried to correct it by following the airline's advice. So it wasn't until my son was 18 months old, and I think it was possibly his sixth flight, That's the ticket agent who told us she was a mom herself, and so she was sympathetic. I think she broke the protocol of not telling us the truth and told us the truth. He said, your son is being flagged by a watch list. What I'm doing right now is I have to make a phone call to verify his identity. And keep in mind, he's 18 months old at this time. He had just started walking. So here we are at the airport with our son sitting in his Mm -hmm. car seat. And yeah, that's when we found out. So 18 months after the fact, somebody finally had the courage to tell us. And you can bet as soon as I found out I was on the phone with the airline trying to get more information, more confirmation, when I call them up, I get more denials. I get people telling me, oh, no, that person that told you that they made a mistake, you know, your son's not on a watch list. And they told me again, we had made booking errors. So what I did is I hung up the phone and I called them back and I pretended that I had never talked to them before. And I did that, I think, probably three times before I got someone else, again, who was willing to tell me the truth. And it actually surprises me to this day that they gave me written confirmation. So I have from WestJet an email stating that we can confirm that your baby is on a government watch list and then giving me advice for how to deal with that. And basically the advice is show up early at the airport. If he's on the U.S. watch list, then you can apply for redress with the U.S. government. But if he's on the Canadian watch list, you're out of luck. So that's how we found out. And that was two years ago. And then two months after that, just like Karen said, that's when the story of little Adam Ahmed, whose parents are not on this podcast with us, but are founding and core team members of No Flyless Kids, They went public. And at that point, we decided the only way this is going to get fixed is if we go public, too. And we kind of all joined forces. And now we've been working together for two years. It's hard to believe.
0: So what's your understanding of how names end up on the no-fly list?
1: I would imagine that this is a list of legit people that are off interest. So there is possibly an Adam Amet that is really criminal out there. But unfortunately, it is not my Adam Amet, who's 19 years old. And it's not little Adam Amet that's eight years old. So there needs to be other criteria.
2: Just like Karen, I would like to think that the names being added to this list are of legitimate threats that that shouldn't be getting on airplanes. But in terms of what we actually know about it, I would say it's very opaque. There is a lot of secrecy. And even as a parent trying to find out more about the system that's affecting my son, I've encountered a lot of secrecy and it's a black box in a lot of ways. It's a system to which I believe there is little to no oversight, has a lot of the security and intelligence wings of our government work. So that's been one of the frustrating things in working on this problem is some of the Parts of the security apparatus that we're working with are obviously not very forthcoming with answers.
0: Tell me more about the process of bringing the impacted families together and starting to take some action.
2: The whole thing started with a tweet, like Karen said. Adam Ahmed's father tweeted out a picture of his son being flagged, six-year-old Adam, and that kind of went viral. With that came media requests for interviews. They reached out, obviously, to Adam and his family, and they were doing a lot of media requests. Since we had found out, I had already been in touch with a reporter who was very interested in telling our story. But I told him, no, I really don't want to go public. I want to go through the proper channels, so to speak. I was in touch with our MP. But that was late 2015, and the new government had just been elected. RMP MP in particular was brand new. And so I was getting a lot of, you know, we're just setting up our office, give us some time. And I thought if this public pressure isn't gonna solve it, then nothing is. So at that time for our family, we took media requests as well. And I know Karen and her family did. And at that time we just got on the phone with each other. Like we didn't know each other before this. It really just started as like, what can we do as individuals? But then people started contacting us on the Twitter account. And within a few weeks, I'm a tech guy, I I do software for a living, so we had all this media coverage and we had people contacting us. So I thought, hey, let me throw up a little website. And people started emailing us through the website as well to say, hey, my son is on the list. Hey, my daughter's on the list. And we thought we were the only ones. We had lots of people contact us that way. And I should note that many of them wanted to reach out, but they were also afraid to go public. So No Flyless Kids consists of, I would say, a core group of families that have really gone all the way in terms of putting their kids in the public spotlight, even though they may not have wanted that, but to keep the pressure up and further the cause. But a whole lot of other families who are equally affected, but I think are understandably wary of taking their story public. Some of them are scared of reprisal. This is Canada and you wouldn't think of it that way, but you are going up against these secretive security apparatus and and the government. And depending on, you know, what your profession is, that can be a bit scary. And we've expanded beyond kids. Like I said, this doesn't just happen to kids, this happens to adults. And the fact of the matter is, I would say the story has only gotten so much attention because it's happening to kids, but it's been happening to everyone since the creation of the no fly list. And so we have people in our group that are high-level executives. We have doctors. We have an airline pilot, if you'll believe it. There's an airline pilot who obviously, for obvious reasons, is not willing to go public because it would affect their livelihood, but their name is on the no-fly list. And so it doesn't just affect kids. It affects, we estimate, tens of thousands of Canadians.
0: So as you've gone through this, what have politicians and officials told you that you should be doing about it?
2: I haven't met anyone yet who says that this isn't a problem and this doesn't need to be fixed. Everyone agrees that it's an absurd situation and that it needs to be fixed, including RMP, including any other politician that I've spoken with directly. There seems to be overwhelming support that this is a problem that needs to be solved. However, when it comes down to the people in charge, so that would be the Ministry of Public Safety in Canada is the one that maintains and enforces the no-fly list, so that would be headed by Minister Ralph Goodale, and obviously the government itself, headed by Justin Trudeau. They're the ones who have the power to fix this, and while they've talked the talk from time to time, they said over 18 months ago that they were going to fix this, and that this was a big problem that was stigmatizing these kids. They recognized families shouldn't have to put up with this, and yet they have yet to take one concrete step two years later to fixing that problem.
1: Yeah, it seems like for a lot of time, we've just been listening to words. Like Samir said, like two years is a long time, and we've been listening to 18 months. Yes, it needs to be fixed. We totally understand where you're coming from. Yet, we're the ones that have to deal with this issue every single time that we fly. Talk is cheap, and it's time for action.
0: Since getting to the stage of being an established group, what sorts of things have you done collectively to try and get this changed?
2: I don't want to give the impression that we're a super organized <laughs> group that yeah. makes these, we're not. <laughs> um, these uh, you know, highly strategic collective decisions. At the core, we're just a group of parents that talk to each other on the phone, and some of us might decide one thing and others might decide another, and we'll just do them. At the beginning, we were quite hopeful. The media attention that the initial flurry had generated, that had opened a discussion with the government, and at the beginning in the first six months, Minister Goodill, <laughs> Like I said, he was saying a lot of the right things in public, especially the parents of the older children who had already been experiencing this for years. I don't think they came into this thinking it was going to be fixed next week. I think they said as long as the government commits to fixing it, and then like they're saying it's going to take 18 months, 24 months, whatever to fix, as long as they stick to their word, fine, we understand that's how things work. So for that first while, we knew that the 2017 budget was coming up. And we said, we're going to keep the media pressure on. We're going to talk to the government. So all the families, we showed up at a public safety consultation in Markham. And all of us spoke directly to Minister Goodell, told our stories at the microphone with our kids there. He heard us. He told us that this is a problem they want to fix. And then there's no mention in budget 2017 of funding for a redress system, which would solve this problem for the families. So that's where the group may have galvanized a bit. Because the first go around, we thought, hey, we're doing this the good, honest way. We're getting some media attention, but we're also working with the government, cooperating with them. And they've told us they're going to fix it and they're going to fix it. And then when that budget dropped and we saw that we were not a part of their plans at all, we said, "Okay, we obviously need to apply more pressure. We need to work with them and we need to help mobilize them. So that's when we started a letter writing campaign. Anyone we talked to about this issue agreed that it was a problem that needed to be solved. And we thought, hey, if we can get all those people that agree with us to put that in writing, then we'll be able to show how much support there is for this in government. And so we started reaching out to first our own MPs, obviously as families, but then... Just using our family, for example, I told my parents, who are the grandparents of my son, to write their MP and ask for his support. And we all did that. We used our old-fashioned social networks of our families and friends. And we found, for the most part, these MPs, they all agreed with us that it should be fixed. And they were all, you know, liberal MPs willing to write letters to their own ministers, to Minister Godot and Minister Morneau, to say, hey, this needs to be fixed, and hey, the solution to this problem needs funding. And so we collected one by one, letters to two MPs.
1: We just went and asked every MP to support us. And many, many, many of them did. We also had a petition that went across Canada and was pretty spectacular. Among the parents, again, were just everyday people with regular jobs trying to coordinate this massive effort. But there were lots of really outstanding prominent Canadians that stood up and said, we will sign it. We will help you with your social media. We will tweet. We will, you know, do Instagram stories. We'll do whatever you need to help you guys get this funding for 2018. We're blessed. We had a lot of really amazing people to work with. We want to make sure that the government knows just because we're a group of everyday parents, we're not just going to sit back and take it. We're actually going to take action and we're going to keep pushing until we get this in the 2018 budget.
2: We had a, Hill Day, as I've come to learn that it's called. This was, again, something that wasn't really in our vocabulary or even thoughts, but we've had quite a few advisors that have come along and helped us that are definitely more familiar with how things are done in Ottawa and in politics. And they said, this issue, you've got so much support. You need to do something with this. You, You can't just sit on this pile of letters and this petition. So they said, you should go to Ottawa, and you should meet with the politicians face to face and also hold a press conference to highlight how much support we've garnered. And we did that in early November. We had a press conference where not only parents, but some of the kids spoke. Yusuf Ahmed is a student at the University of Western Ontario. He's flagged by the list every time he flies, and he spoke very eloquently for himself. And we got a lot of press coverage, and at that time, I think we presented over 180 letters from MPs. That includes not just individual letters from MPs, but letters representing entire caucuses and from each political party. So we had, for example, the entire Ontario caucus of the Liberal Party, which is 80 MPs. We had the entire Bloc Quebecois, the entire NDP, several members of the Conservative Party. Overall, we felt like the day was a success, but still, we have yet to have a commitment of any sort from the Ministry of Public Safety or from the government. And what are your key demands? First and foremost is something called a redress system. So let me talk about what that is. So currently, the problem is that if you try to fly and your name matches somebody on the no-fly list, you're flagged. Whether you're three years old and the person on the list is 40 years old, it doesn't matter. So first, we want to see like sensible metadata being applied to flagging of that list. So first and foremost, date of birth. If my son is three years old and the person on the list is in their 30s, there's no way my son should be flagged every time he flies. However, if they implement the system in such a way and there are still false positives that can't be avoided, this is where the redress system comes in. What needs to happen is you can vet that person once, you can screen them once, and that's fine. At that point, once you screen them and you say, okay, this person's not a threat, you should assign them a unique identifier. It's called a redress number. And anytime they travel, they use this redress number, and they don't need to be screened every single time they travel. Now, the United States, that has a no-fly list, which the Canadian no-fly list is based off of, has had a redress system for over a decade. The United States offers their travellers more rights and freedoms on this issue than Canada does. In Canada, there's no such redress system, and that's what we're asking the government to fund and implement. So, given that you've seen so much
0: support from individual politicians and officials, and given that the U.S. has had a system similar to what you're asking for in place for a decade, What's your guess as to why there has been no action on this issue from the Canadian government?
2: That is the million dollar question. I would say Um, We don't have any insight into the inner workings of the government on this. This seems like such a simple problem with a simple fix. Why hasn't it been solved by now? And I don't have an answer to that.
1: I would imagine that it's budget, but I would question, you know, where those amounts actually come from. There was some pretty high amount that was floated out there that we heard of. And our question is, how did you come about this figure? There's a lot of secrecy with those final points. So we're not really privy to that information.
2: A year ago now, there was a leaked cabinet document that was reported by the Globe and Mail that said the government was looking at a fix for this. And they were budgeting, I think it was on the order of overall a quarter of a billion dollars, which is, it, it blew us all away. You know, you wonder, like, why checking somebody's date of birth in addition to their name would cost that much. But I've come to understand one of the reasons possibly for that is, as I said initially, our government, even though it maintains a no-fly list, it doesn't do the checking of the list. It farms that out to the airlines, which in and of itself is questionable from a privacy standpoint. So in order for the government to rein in this flawed system, part of what they need to do is build the infrastructure to enforce the list themselves.
0: I'm interested in your thoughts about some of the strengths and weaknesses of a focus on kids in the group's work. So for instance, with poverty, if you look historically, centering kids and child poverty has been pretty effective in getting poverty onto agendas that might otherwise ignore it completely, but at the same time, doing that has sometimes sharpened the division between people who are seen as innocent and deserving and those who are seen as undeserving. Has anything like that played out in terms of the no-fly list? The focus on kids opening doors, but maybe sometimes making it harder to talk about other
2: facets of injustice around the no-fly list? What I've seen is mostly on the positive side. What the kids show is the absurdity of the system, I think. How a three-year-old could be conflated with a, you know, a four-year-old shows how insecure that system is, how badly implemented it is. But our ask is not to solve this just for the kids, because the kids become adults. Our ask is to solve this for everyone. And so As one politician in Ottawa put it to me, the kids' part of this issue is, as they say, the thin edge of the wedge. It's a way to get our foot in the door to show that this system is flawed, it needs reform. And that starts with small steps, but we don't think resolving this issue just for kids is acceptable. It needs to be solved for all Canadians that are innocent.
0: What does your group have coming up in the next while?
2: We're just continuing keeping up the pressure, and that means reaching out to MPs, having discussions with them. We know that decisions for budget 2018 are being made in the near future, and that's our goal. We want to see full funding for a redress system in budget 2018, and if it's not in there, then certainly we will be exploring other options. One of those options is that we have been approached by law firms who are interested in this case, who think that it represents a violation of our charter rights, and they certainly believe that that's a case that can be won. As a group, we've always preferred to avoid the legal avenue, but if the government has been given two cracks at fixing this problem in Budget 2017 and now Budget 2018, and they refuse to do so, then going the legal route is certainly something we're going to be looking at.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Karen Ahmed and Zamir Khan about the group No Fly List Kids. To learn more about their work and to find out how to act in support, go to noflylistkids.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.